Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbroadcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. Hello, this is Human Ordinary. Documentaries about culture, relationships, and all those things that make us human. I'm Sam Loy. Welcome to the show. Massive big extra special shout out to Cosetta Bosi, who is our latest supporter on Possible.com. Thank you, Cosetta, for your support. It means a lot to us. You can join Cosetta and the rest of the gang by searching for the show on Possible, and then for the amount each month that you'd find between your couch cushions, you can get access to ad-free and early episodes, bonus content, merch, and our eternal gratitude. So, this one time, my mate's dad died. And his funeral was packed. Like, really packed. He had died relatively young, so that may have something to do with all the respect payers, but it couldn't explain them all. He was a friendly guy, and his presence had clearly impacted on a lot of people throughout his time. It's a shame that he couldn't see how much he had meant to others, but I suspect that if he had, he would have wondered what all the fuss was about. After the service, I remember my dad musing on how many people would be at his funeral. He wasn't being competitive or anything. He was just considering the mark that he was leaving on this earth and the people on it. I think that's something many of us consider a lot as we go about our lives. Questions like whether we're enriching the experience of others and whether people are grateful for our existence are pretty big things to ponder. I think most of us want a happy life, but we also want a life that's fulfilling and meaningful to others. This time on Human Ordinary, producer Mick Cavazzini has a chance encounter with a woman who made an indelible impact on the Australian legal and social landscape. A year and a half ago, my girlfriend invited me to a dinner party. Her former university lecturer was having a few people over, and I was expecting it to be some sort of class reunion. It turned out we were the youngest guests by about 20 years, and the least distinguished by far. There were professors in economics and education, former government advisors, and the co-founder of the Fred Hollows Foundation. Two of the guests had received the Order of Australia, the highest civilian honour in the country. One of these was the Honourable Jane Matthews, a tall, spry woman with a quick tongue. She was funny and worldly, and thrilled to practice her Italian with me as she'd been visiting Tuscany regularly since her semi-retirement. I was fascinated to hear she'd broken a few glass ceilings during her career as a barrister and judge. I asked if I could interview her for a podcast, and she kindly agreed as if she didn't know what all the fuss was about. It was September 2018 before I finally made it round to her place, a bright and immaculate apartment in the historic Sydney dock area. It was decorated with heirloom furniture and vibrant paintings by Aboriginal artists. She turned off some classical music with a test. Do you know who this is? I failed. It was Wagner. She told me that she'd travelled around the world to see performances of the Ring Cycle. Can you give me the one-line introduction that sums you up? Oh, well, I'm I'm Jane Matthews. Uh, I was I studied law forever ago, 
and I've been incredibly lucky in my life. I was um, the first woman uh, judge, both District Court and Supreme Court in New South Wales, and uh, I regard myself as having been incredibly fortunate. I presume you have done a lot of these over... over no, the not years. really. No? no? I hope this is fun and interesting for you in some, <laughs> in some way. <laughs> um, oh, shit, sorry. After recording the interview, life sort of got in the way. I didn't get to editing it down because I wasn't quite sure where it would fit in with the rest of the season of Human Ordinary. Then one day I was stunned by a news headline I read over breakfast. Trailblazing former judge Jane Matthews dies aged 78. It had been a year since we'd last met. I was sad not just at the news itself, but that she'd been so generous with her time and I had not lived up to my side of the deal. At the same time, I felt a sense of responsibility, of privilege even, that perhaps I held some of her last recorded words. So it's an honour really to share these with you now, even if it's only a glimpse into Jane's remarkable life. I have to thank her goddaughter Erin and nephew Dougal for filling in some of the gaps that Jane was too humble or too shy to tell me about. Jane's story starts in the mid-1950s at a boarding school in Mittagong, a rustic town in the highlands south of Sydney. Apparently she hated the strict schools so much that she once faked stomach pains to skip class. So convincingly, in fact, that the emergency doctor removed her appendix, but on seeing no sign of inflammation said to her, well, you won't be able to use that excuse again. But when Jane's 8th grade teacher made the class watch a classic of courtroom drama, this gave her a newfound motivation to stay in class. The pivotal moment in my life. <laughs> it's when, uh, when I was 14, 15 at boarding school and they showed a film, The Winslow Boy, from Terence Rattigan play. And uh, it was about a school kid that had been wrongly charged with stealing and it was taken up by a senior barrister who ended up before a high court saying effectively, let justice be done. And it went straight to my idealistic 14-year-old heart. And um, I decided I wanted to be a lawyer. And so I went home the next holidays and said to my parents, I'm going to study law. And my father said, no daughter of mine's going to do law. He was very conservative in many ways. <laughs> so I spent the next two years persuading him, giving him books like Henry Cecil's Daughters in Law. <laughs> and, and finally he came around and he said, of course, it'll all be a waste of time and money because you'll get married and have babies and that'll be the end of it. But if you absolutely insist, all right, you can do law. It was absolutely amazing. I'll never forget the first day, the orientation day, and I was straight out of a all-girls boarding school. I'd hardly had any contact with boys. And suddenly, I was the only female in this class. And the teacher got up and said, lady and gentlemen, <laughs> I was blown away. I loved it. <laughs> there were only two others that started and finished in the same year as me. And we're talking about a year of about 200 people. It really wasn't on the radar for women in those days. Jane Matthews finished university in 1962 and worked for a few years as a solicitor back home in Wollongong. She was 24 when she returned to the big city to join a big city firm. 
Alan Allen and Helmsley had been around for 140 years already and attracted high-rolling clients like Kerry Packer. A lot of Jane's time was spent on defamation suits against the media tycoons' newspapers. Now, a solicitor's work is kind of like that of a lab scientist. Careful, rigorous, academic. It was interesting enough, but Jane aspired to the gladiatorial spectacle of the courtroom. So in 1969, she was admitted to the New South Wales Bar, where she started to learn the cut and thrust of being a barrister. A barrister works for themselves, a sword for hire who gets called upon by the law firm to argue a case in court. But many solicitors from those firms believed the rah-rah rough-and-tumble of the courts was unsuited to the fairer sex, and few were prepared to brief a woman to represent them. Um, It was incredibly difficult in those days for women, because the judges were very conservative too. I mean, they had a choice as to who they briefed. Women were outsiders, and so wouldn't be generally in the client's interests, I would have thought, to, um, to have an outsider representing them. It was a very male-dominated profession in its entirety. You know, there were, when I went to the bar, there were only seven or eight other women at the bar, and they were virtually all of them, with one exception, Mary Gordon, specialising in family law. Not because they wanted to, but that was the only field that the all-male solicitors thought that there was a place for women barristers. And um, I didn't want to do family law. And I knew that if I accepted it, I'd probably end up doing nothing else. So I had to make an immediate decision of refuse it and uh, starve. And uh, so I chose the starvation choice. And it really was very tough for a while. I discovered a form of legal aid for um, district court criminal trials appearing for the accused, which paid an absolute pittance. So the vast majority of barristers (laughs) didn't want to touch it. Uh, But for me, it was work. So I took it on, and that put me into criminal law, which I've always just loved. And... um, To me, it's the most fascinating branch of the law. You know, virtually every other branch of the law is ultimately about money, but the criminal law is ultimately about people. And you see the best and the worst of people. You you get truth being stranger than fiction. You know, it's absolutely fascinating. I love it. Jane's only female peer in the criminal court, Mary Gordon, suffered the very same sort of discrimination. When Mary was minted as a barrister only one year before, most of the chambers in Sydney wouldn't even give her a room to practice from. Jane found a natural home in chambers alongside prominent members of the New South Wales Council for Civil Liberties. After five years proving herself in this arena, Jane was invited to work on a controversial public inquiry under Gough Whitlam's Labor government the 1974 Royal Commission on Human Relationships would look at gender discrimination, not so much in the workplace, but in more intimate settings. For example, the poor sex education given to women in the doctor's clinic and the pressure to go ahead with unintended pregnancies. As counsel assisting, Jane would have the most senior role after the three commissioners, Justice Elizabeth Everett, Anglican Archbishop Felix Arnott and journalist Anne Deverson. 
they set about taking testimony from women at shopping centres, from sex workers, victims of domestic abuse, and people who'd been marginalised for their sexuality. Of course, they they wanted a female there um, because there were a lot of um, female issues, virtually all the issues. It started off as a result of an abortion debate in um, federal parliament. That was the thing, the catalyst, which started the whole Royal Commission off. And uh, But that was only one of the many issues that we dealt with. And uh, one of the ones I found fascinating where I was the sexual offences one. Um, As I discovered really when I went into the criminal courts, that um, it was totally an all-male environment, totally all-male, and therefore a pretty hostile environment for a female victim in that situation, to put it mildly. It was very bad. Um, And because of that, of course, most victims just wouldn't come forward and make complaints. Um, When I was at the private bar, I refused to appear for a a fellow on a sexual offence charge because it would have involved cross-examining the victim. And I just wasn't prepared to do that. Um, On the other hand, when I became a Crown Prosecutor, um, I'll never forget the first sexual offence case that I I was prosecuting. There were were actually two female victims, complainants, and um, in this otherwise totally all-male court, because all juries were men in those days, um, it made such a difference for them. Uh, you, they, they, one of them actually cried with, with relief when she when she saw that the person represent, effectively representing them, the Crown Prosecutor, uh, was to be a woman. And um, so after that, I actually specifically asked um, to to take on as many as those of those cases as I could because it did make such a difference to the to the complainants. The three most contentious issues raised by the Royal Commission were the decriminalisation of abortion, homosexuality and prostitution. But even ideas to legally recognise unmarried parents or sexual consent between teenagers scandalised conservative Australia. The 1977 report did result in the establishment of the Family Court, but most of its 500 recommendations were ignored by the newly elected Conservative government. It was only in 2017, for example, that victims of sexual assault were spared from persistent and harassing cross-examination in the courts. And abortion has only just been removed from the Criminal Act in New South Wales. I wonder what Jane would have made of this. Jane's already mentioned that she went on to become Crown Prosecutor, but she didn't say that she was the first woman in New South Wales to hold that position too. The Crown Prosecutor represents the state against people alleged to have committed the most serious criminal offences. Jane was 36 when she got the call from the Attorney-General's department offering her that position. She told the secretary that she'd rather be on the other side of the court as a public defender. The guy said he'd pass her request up the food chain, but it didn't quite go as planned. Then he rang, he rang back a while, not long afterwards, and in the meantime he'd rung the then head um, <laughs> public defender and asked about taking me on, and the <clears throat> the public defender had said, no, not possible. 
Uh, no female toilet. <laughs> no toilet facilities and big dangerous in the prisons. <laughs> so I became a um, <laughs> Crown Prosecutor instead. Jane's incredible story is far from complete. Find out more after a short break. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Welcome back to Human Ordinary and the story of the late Jane Matthews. Jane had made it as a crown prosecutor despite the sexism within the legal profession and across Australian culture. One of the Supreme Court justices whose attention she caught was John Haldon Wooden QC, known to everyone as Hal. They married in 1976 and moved to a farmhouse in the Kangaroo Valley, where they bred horses and hosted Wagner listening parties. Jane would fiercely defend the composer's reputation against anyone who suggested he'd been a Nazi sympathiser. During the 12 years that Jane and Hal lived together, he became a commissioner on the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. And as chair of the Australian Press Council, he challenged the growing control of Rupert Murdoch's News Corp over the Australian media. As for Jane's eloquence and clinical understanding of the law, it was to earn her another surprising accolade. Well, in March 1980, I received a phone call from the then Attorney General, a lovely fellow called Frank Walker, and uh, he said... I want to appoint you to the district court, and if you say no, I'll sump you. (laughs) So I couldn't say no. (laughs) So I'll never forget, I was sworn in on the 31st of March, 1980, um, as the only female on the court. I was staggered, really staggered. To be a judge um, was outside the radar for women in those days. And there were no women judges, and so it wasn't something that we particularly aspired to. I certainly didn't. It's never occurred to me. One thing I should say about being a judge is, to my mind, the most difficult part of a judge's life is sentencing. The only times I've ever had physical manifestations of stress are when I've been sentencing. I'll never forget the... Um, in 19, December 1980, I had to sentence someone who I thought was redeemable to a sentence that seemed a long time then, fraction of what I was sending them to more recently. And um, with sentencing, of course, you have the submissions and evidence on sentence and then you adjourn to write up your reasons and then, the, then in due course the court is reconvened when you've done it all and um, so on this day I um, went into court and read out you know the background and etc etc and the last thing you say 
is such and such, I sentence you to. And I reached the stage of saying that, and my heart went pitter-patter, pitter-pitter-patter, and I thought I was having a heart attack. And um, time stood still. I, I have no idea how long I was sitting there. It was a packed court, and, of course, it was the crucial words um, that everybody was waiting for. And, um, and then after God knows how long, I realised I was still sitting there. I was still upright. I couldn't be having a heart attack. So I threw out the words and fled off the bench and, of course, realised afterwards there were the physical symptoms of stress. And it's happened since on a number of occasions with difficult sentencing matters. But after that, I was prepared for it. So, you know, it didn't have the incredible impact of the first occasion. In 1981, Jane's father, Frank, was diagnosed with cancer and stepped down from his role as Deputy Chancellor at the University of New South Wales. Frank died the following year, but not before acknowledging that he'd been wrong about doubting Jane's aspirations. Jane herself would go on to become Deputy Chancellor 11 years later, and insisted on wearing her father's robes. Frank had also been central to the foundation of the University of Wollongong, where Jane later helped establish the Faculty of Law. Returning to 1985, however, the now Honourable Justice Matthews became the presiding judge on the New South Wales Equal Opportunity Tribunal. One of the most impactful cases she heard was titled Levis versus the Minister for Education. Melinda Levis was a student at Canterbury Girls High School, with a twin brother at the neighbouring Canterbury Boys. But there was a stark difference in the choice of subjects that the siblings were offered in school. At the... Um Boys' public schools, or particularly the one that this case was about, the uh, boys were given the subjects, you know, which could advance, the optional subjects which could advance their careers. The girls were given, um, <laughs> uh, you know, domestic, only domestic type subjects, which could do nothing to further their careers. And um, I found that that was unlawful discrimination. And um, the minister appealed unsuccessfully, fortunately, and it literally changed um, public education in the state so that um, girls were given optional subjects, the same as boys were. And it's, it's unusual for a judge to be able to make a decision that actually has a real positive um, that makes a positive contribution to society. And, uh, and it's, some, it's a real privilege when you can do so. We did some fascinating cases because it was the, um, the, the early days of anti-discrimination. And um, they're the ones that I remember. In her judgments, Jane Matthews was recognised for her sharp intellect, clear thinking and superb judicial temperament. Those are the words of one of her successors in the judiciary and now Governor Margaret Beasley, at Jane's eventual retirement. It was with this reputation that in 1987, Jane got another phone call that shook her. And and my associate put the call through to me, and she knew it was the Attorney-General. And and I got off the phone and I said, Shit! And she, 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 she was a close, already a close friend of mine. And she came home 
and she put her arm around me and she obviously thought that something terrible had happened. And um, she said, what's wrong? And I said, he offered me the Supreme Court. (laughs) I was loving my work on the district court so much. But but when I thought about it, um, of course, there were no women on the Supreme Court. Indeed, there were no women on any Supreme Court in the country at that stage. So when, after, after getting the phone call <laughs> about the Supreme Court, when I thought about it for a very short time, I thought, well, I have to do it, have to do it. And I left the district court as an all-male court. I was still the only woman there. <laughs> the Supreme Court is the highest court in the state, and its rulings can only be overturned by the High Court of Australia. Incredibly, Jane's rise to these ranks in New South Wales came more than 20 years after Roma Mitchell was appointed to the Supreme Court of South Australia. Not so much a revolution as a glacier of women's liberation. While serving on the Supreme Court, Jane had an uplifting experience when she was invited to a conference by the American Association of Women Judges and saw so many women with the same hopes and challenges. When she went on to establish the Australian Association of Women Judges in 1992, All five of them could fit in her office to sign the paperwork. Jane Matthews then went on to the federal courts, becoming president of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. Yet another first for a woman. But she also asked to be deputy president of the newly formed Native Title Tribunal, based on experiences her mother Janet had had late in life after raising three children. My mother was an amazing woman. She was a professional pianist before she got married and then she became a piano teacher. And um, her life changed when she was in her 50s, early 50s, when an old family friend became the First Minister for Aboriginal Affairs and started the Institute of Aboriginal Studies and asked Mum if she'd like if she'd be prepared to be a field worker for the Institute. And my mother had never met an Aboriginal person in her life and she instantly said yes and it totally changed and enriched the last third of her life. She wrote lots of books and she she did a wonderful job of it. Jane's mother actually travelled all around New South Wales, recording Aboriginal language and song, particularly amongst Dharawal and Durga-speaking people on the South Coast. Given her background as a musician, she approached these not just as an archival project like many of her predecessors, but as a living culture. After Jane's own experience with the Native Title Tribunal, in 1996 she was asked to provide advice on a divisive Aboriginal heritage case that still resonates today. Hindmarsh Island sits on the Murray River estuary in South Australia, and has a long history of Aboriginal settlement. Developers were planning to build a bridge at a tiny port called Gulwa, which means elbow in the local Nyaranjeri language. It's only quite a small distance, but at that stage the only way you could get there was by ferry. And um, these developers, the Chapmans, wanted to put a bridge across and then put quite a lot of, you know, develop quite a lot of the island as sort of tourist destinations. And uh, the area over the water was sacred to the Indigenous women, but it was for reasons that only women were allowed to know. No men were ever allowed to know it. So they made their claim. Nyer and Jerry women put in a claim to try and prevent the building of the bridge and under under the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Heritage Protection Act, if a um, 
Indigenous people make a claim to try and prevent the degradation of their heritage, then um, it's a decision that has to be made by the minister personally. The Nyarangeri women shared their stories with an anthropologist on the proviso that they be read by women only. This request wasn't respected by some in Parliament, and the press became rife with speculation as to what the secret women's business was all about. Was there symbolism in the shape of the estuary or of the joining of the waters? Or was this all a convenient fabrication, since there were no records of the stories written down by earlier anthropologists, all of them white men? However, rival claims about the tradition within the Nyarangeri also weakened the case for protection, as far as the state was concerned. The Federal Minister for Indigenous Affairs did put a ban on the project going ahead, but this was reversed in the courts on a technicality. The original Nyarangeri women made another appeal to have the sacred site protected, and it was then that Jane was appointed to give her legal advice to the Labour Minister. It was a particularly difficult time. Um... At the time, Paul Keating was the Prime Minister and he appointed a female minister specially to deal with the issue, so there was a full female line. You know, I had a council assisting, all fe- everyone was female. And uh, then at the beginning of the following year, there was a federal election and um, John Howard came in and I pleaded with him to do the same thing, but he wouldn't. So the minister for Aboriginal Affairs was a man and the women went to water and wouldn't tell their stories. And uh, so um, I I found it very distressing, actually. They were very distressed, but um, they weren't prepared to tell their stories because ultimately they were going to have to be heard by a man. And so the the bridge was ultimately built. With the change of government, Jane ended up giving her advice to a conservative Liberal senator. She wrote that the dreaming stories may well make the Goolwa Channel a significant Aboriginal area, and that further consultation was needed to decide whether the construction project would disturb these traditions, not to mention archaeological burial sites on the shoreline. A few months later, Jane was removed from her role, which was deemed in conflict with other judicial responsibilities she still held. Her report was never completed and the bridge ended up being built in 2000. A year later, Jane retired from full-time work at the federal court, but still kept her finger in many pies. She became president of the International Association of Women Judges and mentored magistrates in Papua New Guinea and other developing countries on defending the rights of women and children in their courts. In 2005, she was made an officer in the Order of Australia for her service to the judiciary, to education and her lavish generosity to classical music ensembles. Even in her later years as an acting judge on the Supreme Courts in New South Wales and ACT, Jane Matthews would be asked to preside over some of the most horrific cases of physical and sexual violence. Ironic given that when she started her career, women were seen as too meek for criminal law. Despite her enduring recognition as an impartial and compassionate jurist, she still got the occasional reminder about the boys' club she had broken into. My associate had already gone into, was sitting in the court, it was number three court in the uh, King Street complex, and um, they'd run out of court officers, so they had to bring one in from outside who was clearly unfamiliar with the building, and so he was, his duty was to usher me into the court, 
So we went down the corridor into the sort of private area and uh, he stopped at <laughs> the door before the court door and knocked three times as the court officer always does and then opened the door and said, silence, please stand. And it was the man's toilet. <laughs> Jane was dreading her 78th birthday, as that would mean her forced retirement after 39 years as a judge. That was the only year she didn't celebrate as she normally did with her ex-husband and his wife. The three of them shared the same birth date in September, and a very close friendship, as Jane's goddaughter told me. In the same month, Jane Matthews was diagnosed with cancer that had already metastasized throughout her body. There was no hope of treatment, but she continued a packed schedule of restaurant outings and concerts, right up to her death on the 31st of August, 2019. She will be recognised by a state memorial. I'm really grateful to Erin Sullivan and Dougal Kennedy for giving their blessing to this podcast. I hope it goes some way to capture not just the impact Jane Matthews made in her work, but also what a lively personality she was. There are many other tributes out there from women she has mentored. I've linked some of these and other historic highlights on the website. Particularly interesting is an ABC podcast on the Royal Commission on Human Relationships called Public Intimacies. Thanks to the Human Ordinary team, as always, for their ears. The music you heard was by David Shestai, Blue Dot Sessions, Chris Zabriskie, Montplaisir, and Jilly Cuddy. I'm Mick Cavazzini. Thanks for listening. That was Mick Cavazzini. Mick has another great podcast about the culture of medicine called Pomegranate Health. The latest episode on the business of opioids is a fascinating and accessible exploration into the historical and current usage of the painkiller. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. We'll also post some links to more info on Jane Matthews and her life on our website. There's a couple of pictures there too. Human Ordinary is produced in Melbourne and Sydney by Mick Cavazzini, Cinnamon Nippard, May Jasper and me, Sam Lloyd. Special thanks to Claire Tonti at Planet Broadcasting and Guy Scott Wilson at ACAST. Our artwork is by Fergal Quigley and our theme music is by The Contortionist Handbook. Score a free t-shirt, bonus content and ad-free episodes by subscribing to Human Ordinary at possible.com. For more info on the show, head to the website or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Anyway, thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbroadcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. I mean, if you want. It's up to you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.